What's up, everybody? Dave here. Just want to remind you that this episode of Tales from the Backlog is brought to you by the patrons of The Tube. Personal heroes of mine, such as Chris Nelson and the Top 3 Podcast crew, have gone to patreon.com slash realdavejackson to support The Tube, and they're getting some cool treats in return. You can be like them and head to patreon.com slash realdavejackson, and you will be my hero too. All right, let's get to the show. Hey everybody, my name is Dave Jackson and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog, where each week I'm joined by a guest to talk about a game we played. My guest today is a returning friend of the show and Corvid enthusiast, Jamie Locamp. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, for those who have been with uh, the show for a long time, Jamie was a guest on the Silent Hill 2 episode, which is still one of my favorite Uh, discussions that I've had on the show. So if you haven't listened to that, this is October. Go back and listen (laughs) to that. It's another horror game. But today we're going to be talking about The Last Door, uh, seasons one and two, which is a point and click adventure horror game developed and published episodically by The Game Kitchen from 2013 to 2016. Jamie, if you had to give an elevator pitch for The Last Door, what would you say? So my elevator pitch was make a Lovecraftian horror game with the least amount of pixels. Yeah, (laughs) that's really good. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, I was trying to think of how to say it and you did it for me. Um, (laughs) I wrote down an old school point and click inspired by HP Lovecraft uh, that understands HP Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, that with the least amount of pixels is a very key (laughs) thing. It's going to be the first thing you notice when you start playing this game. So very good elevator pitch. Um, Spoiler policy for this episode is this is a very story heavy game. So it's a point and click adventure. There's not a whole lot of gameplay going on. So I think this might be one of those rare episodes where the spoiler section is longer than the non-spoiler part. There's a lot of story and a lot of cool mysteries to uncover. We'll obviously save all those for after the spoiler wall. So if you um, are worried about spoilers, Check down in the show notes for a timestamp for when spoilers begin. So before we get into talking about The Last Door, um, I want to get our personal histories with a couple of things. Uh, So the first thing is, this game's really, really heavily inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Edgar Allan Poe, um, if you read what the developers were inspired by when writing this. Uh, What is your experience with uh, those authors? Um, So classically, like... like I don't have a huge uh, history with Lovecraft, except that I know at some point I definitely played Eternal Darkness, um, and I definitely played Dark Corners of the Earth, but I don't think I really made a connection between, like, like cosmic horror and those games. I just knew that they were, like, mm-hmm. kind of weird, spooky games. Um, and then it wasn't until, um, I think it was around the time that they were doing Bloodborne on Bonfireside Chat. Um, that they had an off season right. about Lovecraft stuff, and that kind of like jogged my memory, and I was like, "Oh, 
Like, this is a thing that I should check out. So I ended up going back through the, uh, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, uh, which is an incredible podcast. Big recommends. Um, but basically what they do is they go, at least in the beginning, they go like chronologically story by story and like talk about the story, talk about the historical context around when it was written and that kind of stuff. So. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, I don't have a ton of experience reading Lovecraft. The mo- most of my experience with Lovecraftian ideas and stuff is like, I read a couple of the stories. I read The Call of Cthulhu and a couple others in this big tome of an anthology book that I bought. Mm. Uh, but most of it is stuff like playing Bloodborne or the Call of Cthulhu game that came out, I don't know, four or five years ago, something like mm, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. So it's it's mostly video game based, but like the idea of like the central ideas behind like what Lovecraft thought was cool and scary is like very, very cool to me too. I love the idea that there are things out there that the human brain cannot perceive and should not try to perceive. Mm-hmm. It's very cool to me. Like the opening paragraph of The Call of Cthulhu is like the coolest shit to me. <laughs> so getting into why we wanted to play The Last Door, um, you actually suggested this game to me. I'd never heard of it uh, before Mm -hmm. you messaged me and said, like, hey, you want to play this and talk about it on the show? So I looked it up. I saw that it was Lovecraft-inspired. And um, Adam Buccieri, who's a uh, Tales from the Backlog community member, former guest on the show, future guest on the show too, (laughs) probably, um, he vouched for it too. And he's a big horror guy. So I was like, okay, this is probably good. I'll give it a shot. Um, it's just, you know, it's cheap and people said it's a good Lovecraft story. Why not? And then I saw that it was made by the Game Kitchen, mm-hmm. who also made Blasphemous, which is a game that I really love. So pretty easy, like, game to get into for me. But since you were the one who recommended it to me, what brought you to The Last Door? Um, so I actually kickstarted Blasphemous, and I remember in the lead up to that being released, there was also some advertisement for The Last Door. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, this seems interesting. And I'll, I, you know, wishlisted it and forgot that it existed forever. Um, <laughs> but then like... Gamer I, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was when I was listening to your episode on Blasphemous, it like jogged my memory and I was like, oh, this is... Like, if he liked that game, I bet he will like this game. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, well, this seems like a good excuse to play it. (laughs) Yeah, same for me. And that's a good kind of segue into opening thoughts about The Last Door. I think that if you like the atmosphere in Blasphemous and the music and the art and stuff like that, I think you'll love that about The Last Door, too. This is... Maybe I should have said this in personal history stuff, but this is the first point and click adventure game I think I've ever played. Oh, wow. So this was pretty rough. I'm not going to lie. I got stuck (laughs) very often in this game. It was was a pretty frustrating experience sometimes to actually play. But again, I love the music. I love the way the game looks. And I really, really like the story and stuff like that, too. So... Everything except the gameplay was very good uh, for me. Pretty frustrating gameplay, though. How about you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have a little bit more experience with point-and-click games, but not a lot. Um, And it mostly breaks down to, I like the 
there's like a platonic ideal of a point and click game, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, where like, I feel like the idea is that the puzzles are challenging enough that you feel like you're accomplishing something. You get that like, oh, like I made this connection, I solved the puzzle kind of feeling. Right. Um, unfortunately, what point and click games tend to actually be is like, here's a pile of items that you've picked up, smash them together until you find something, <laughs> and then smash that into every other thing that you can interact with, and maybe you'll mm-hmm. solve a puzzle. So, Yeah, that's fair enough. So <laughs> let's take a little music break, we'll listen to some of the music, we'll get into what this game's all about. So in The Last Door, you have uh, two seasons. Each season has four chapters. Uh, This game was released episodically, but nowadays it's being sold as a total package. Um, You might be able to buy them separately, but it's like when they go on sale, they're like two bucks each. So it's pretty recommended you just buy the whole thing. You uh, what captured me was the opening to season one. Chapter one starts out with this very cool like monologue and also thing that you're doing um, as it tutorializes how to play this game. So I actually wrote down the opening monologue. So you have this character, uh, his name's Anthony Beechworth, and he's giving like a monologue. He says, after all the things I've seen, after all the things I've done, I cannot escape the course my life has taken. I am beyond redemption. I just hope you can forgive me someday. Yours sincerely, Anthony Beechworth. And this is being shown on screen as the game is tutorializing how to pick up objects and interact with stuff uh, while Anthony Beechworth hangs himself. Mm -hmm. And then it cuts and then the story proper begins. That's kind of like a prologue to the story. And after that, I was in. I was like, what a way to begin your game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really strong opening. um, And I like that, like, it's... Like, I don't know, suicide scenes in games can be, like, kind of hit and miss. Um, There's something definitely affecting about, like, making you do it, though. Yeah. Like, you pick up the rope, you Mm -hmm. move a chair into the right spot, you take the rope and interact with a ceiling beam to hang the noose, etc., etc., while this monologue is going on. And knowing that this was a Lovecraft-inspired game, I was like, oh, this guy's seen some shit. Mm-hmm. He's done some shit. I want to know what it was that forced him into this. Yeah, it, it's a, a really strong opening. I really, really liked it. Um, and I like I like that it does play into that sort of classic uh, setup for most Lovecraft narratives, which is your actual protagonist gets a letter from their friend who they mm-hmm. haven't talked to forever, beckoning yep. them to come to their, you know, palatial estate in the English countryside. <laughs> Yeah. Kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yep. And in this game, you play as Beatsworth's childhood friend uh, named Jeremiah DeVitt, uh, who's investigating a letter from Beechworth. Uh, the letter contains a Latin phrase, which I didn't look it up while I was playing the game, but I looked it up this morning. Uh, that phrase means, see that no one knows. Mm-hmm. 
That's all the letter says. And this triggers DeVitt to go, like you said, to Beechworth's palatial estate <laughs> and try and figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, so after this, the mystery is on. And I really, really enjoyed just trying to figure out what it was that happened. And this kind of season one kind of shows you what happens. And then season two is following up on the events of season one. Mm-hmm. So did you enjoy this kind of, um, I don't know, this kind of quest to uncover what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of the uh, the engaging thread in like Lovecraftian media is dangling, you know, a carrot or something in front of you. You know, something bad has happened. You know that like terrible things have been witnessed, but you have to figure out, you have to experience those with the character also to like get to the place where whoever killed themselves or whatever terrible thing happened happens again, you know? Um, and just sort of like it, it, I would say that like this chapter or this season, this first season, especially, I think, uh, engages a lot more with the sort of metaphysical aspects of, um, of Lovecraft stuff. So it's a little bit harder to like, second guess or like figure out where the story is going but it is a really it's really fun to just be along for the ride yeah and then season two is a direct continuation of what happens in season one obviously i'm not going to um spoil that i'm not i actually don't even think i'm going to introduce what goes on in season one or in season two but i think season two is pretty fun to again you're following in footsteps trying to figure out what's going on through that too and if you enjoyed season one i find it very hard to believe that you wouldn't enjoy season two as well trying to figure out what's going on again yeah because the nice thing about season two and we'll get into it in the spoiler section is not only does it tell the story of season two, but it also fills in background story from the first season as well. Right. And I think that this game is really well paced too. like each chapter. There's four chapters in each um, season, two seasons. I didn't mention this before I forgot, but this is like both seasons together takes like five hours to mm-hmm. go through. So this was, well, it started as a game that I would play a little bit before bed, which was a bad idea because this game's game's very scary. (laughs) Like, um, despite how it looks, I was Mm -hmm. very scared playing this game. So it then turned into like, oh, I've got, you know, a half hour to play. I might be able to knock out a whole chapter, um, Mm -hmm. if not most of a chapter, like 30, 45 minutes, something like that. It's a very easy game to play in sections, just like you know, reading a few chapters in a book. Yeah. And I think that's honestly probably the best way to play it is to sit down, play one episode and then get up, take a break, go on with Mm -hmm. the rest of your day and kind of space it out. Like you're watching a TV show or something like that, because it Mm -hmm. gives, you know, your brain more time to like ruminate on what's happened and let those ideas sink in. So, and, and, it's funny, this game is really, not only is it obviously like broken up in two seasons and episodes, but the way that the story is told follows a very like 
TV show format. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of every episode, there's like a continue the adventure in the next episode. At the beginning of every episode, there's like a last time on the last door section, right. you know? And every episode kind of takes place in one specific location, especially mm-hmm. in season one. It'll be like, this episode, you're in this house. And then the next chapter, you're in this uh, school building. And then mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I, yeah, I think it is a good idea to try to finish up a chapter uh, during a play session if you can. I would hate to like put it down in the middle of a chapter and then come back four days later and just have this assortment of items and kind of an <laughs> unclear memory of like, who am I supposed to be trying to find or what, who am I supposed to talk to right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that could definitely get confusing. And I can also see like longer play, se- play sessions than a single episode getting frustrating too. <laughs> As like the frustrations from gameplay start to mount mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, season two introduces multiple locations uh, throughout each chapter and they give you like kind of an overworld map where you can pick what location you want to go to. Um, sometimes you'll need to find an item in one location and then take it to a different location that you've been to before, which only made things worse uh, for my frustrations playing it. But I do like the idea. Like if you're, if you're into this, um, then this just adds another layer to the puzzle of like what you should be doing. Where should you take this new item that you just picked up? Stuff like that. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, even though season one and season two functionally are pretty similar, you can definitely see a difference between like the way that they're designed and even like the quality of graphics, I feel gets slightly better. The mm-hmm. like characters have more animations, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. in between season one and season two. Yeah. Despite like the way that the game might look, I'm glad you brought up the animations because like this is a game where just take a minute, you can count how many pixels are mm-hmm. on the screen or at least how uh, how many blocks are making up the stuff. But like the the way that the environments are drawn and the animations are very good and expressive, I think, despite, you know, the player character looking like he's made of nine rectangles <laughs> the animations and stuff are still really really good yeah and i had a thought about that and i wonder if it's because there's like a specific low poly style that i've noticed kind of popped up in indie games over the last couple of years but it's it's where the the character models or uh sprites are specifically like long and tall instead of being mm-hmm. like short um like you would think of on a I don't know, like a Nintendo game. Um, right. And I wonder if that like definition helps with their expressiveness because you get more like arm animation and you can see more like leg movements and stuff. That's true. Yeah. The characters are, now that I think about it, they are real tall mm-hmm. compared to, yeah, like you, like a Mario or something like that. So I kind of mentioned this before, kind of still talking about the way the game looks. When I first saw this game, when you first posited that we play this and talk about it on the show, mm-hmm. I'm always wary of horror games yes. because I don't like being scared. And I've started to like appreciate a lot more horror games. Um, and I saw this game and I was like, 
I can count the pixels. How scary could this possibly be? <laughs> and <laughs> I could not have been more wrong. This game was terrifying to me. And they use a lot of um, sharp transitions. There's some jump scares. They use a lot of music and sound effects to make you feel really creeped out. Yeah, This ended up being a lot scarier than I expected. And I wonder, like, I think you like horror games a lot more than I do. So I know. what was your experience like? So, like, first of all, I feel like I kind of owe you an apology because I didn't expect <laughs> there to be jump scares. I was like, there's no way that, lo- like, look at this game. There's no way that there's jump scares in it. And right. then the, the first one that I that I came across, I was like, oh, no, Dave is going to be so bad. <laughs> I um, got got, like, three times <laughs> in the first chapter. Several jump scares. Uh, but yeah, no, I also found it really affecting. Um, I think all of the things that you mentioned are really, really strong. They do a good job of, uh, like building an atmosphere instead of just like, just having scary visuals or, you know, just having the jump scare. It's the combination of everything. It's the fact mm-hmm. that you're walking through an empty house. There's like, slightly melancholy piano going on in the background your footsteps Mm -hmm. are like in the mix one of the loudest things that you will ever hear in the game Uh um which is it has to be on purpose um oh yeah if you're playing did you play with closed captions uh probably because i that's the way i play most games but i don't remember so like i specifically noticed that for the closed captions it will caption obviously what the sound is, but also what direction it's coming from, which is really interesting. Hmm. Um, And so like all of this uh, sort of builds together to really, uh, really cement that feeling of like unease as you move through whatever environment you're moving through. Yeah. Yep. I was always very tense because things can turn on a dime Mm -hmm. in this game and that when I say jump scares, I don't always mean things jumping at the screen at you, although there's a couple of those uh, throughout the game. But there's a lot of like really sharp transitions. Like you'll exit a room and then the next time you go in that room, something has changed like drastically. Mm-hmm. Colors are different. Sound effects are really important for these jump scares. Um, or like you'll interact with something it will fade to black and then when it comes back up Mm -hmm. something's there that you weren't ready for and there's a lot of stuff like that so i think that stuff mellowed out in the second season but the first chapter really got me and then there's a couple others i'm thinking of where classic like horror game stuff where they're like you knock on the door, it's locked, but you can look through the keyhole. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to look in the keyhole. Something's <laughs> going to jump out, like guaranteed. Yeah. And that happened a couple times. Yeah. And even like they're, they use that sort of like classic, uh, it's not like a record skip, but it's like a, a like surprise stab. So it'll be like a, a violin stab or like somebody like banging on a piano And, Mm -hmm. like, that's a super cheesy device, but it works really well, and I don't know why, but, like, (laughs) it, like, that in combination, like, there are a couple of times, like you mentioned, where, you know, you'll walk into a room and maybe leave and come back, and, like, things aren't, like, really different, and in this game, you're, you're never, like, you don't die, there's no, like, hit point system, there's no, like, game over, so, like logically you're never really 
in danger as a character, you know, when you're playing the game. But like, yeah. you know, walking up to, I don't know, this strange humanoid figure that's sitting in a bathtub is pretty freaking <laughs> scary. It is. This kind of, I've said on the show before that I think most walking sims are scary to me mm-hmm. because, and I th- I think this game has a very similar thing where if something jumps out, I can't do anything about it. I can't fight back. It's the reason why Bloodborne doesn't scare me because I can mm-hmm. kill anything that jumps out at me. Whereas this game and Firewatch and uh, Gone Home mm-hmm. like terrified me sometimes because I know if something jumps out, I have no recourse. I just have to take that scare in the face, you know? Yeah, yeah Gone Home is a really interesting example of that because that's like explicitly not a horror game that plays with horror atmospheres so much. Mm-hmm. It and it's really good because of that and the way mm-hmm. that like it keeps you on your toes and uh if you want to hear more about how scared I was about Gone Home, I did an episode <laughs> uh, on the show about that. So um but yeah, same kind of thing here and yeah. uh good uh transition to talk about how this game plays. So let's enjoy a little bit more music and uh, we'll get into that. So as a point and click adventure game, um, you have a couple things you're doing. You're walking and you're checking the screen for every single thing that you can interact with. And so you said you have a little bit of experience with point and clicks. Like mm-hmm. what other games have you played? Um, so I've played uh, the Broken Sword game, the first one. Um, which is like a Sierra point and click. Um, okay. I think it came out around the same time as, um, oh gosh, what's the one with the Louisiana guy? Oh man, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so that's just, that's like an older, um, older point and click that like was sort of golden age era. Um, I've tried to play Monkey Island, and I really want to like it, but I've never made any sort of progress in it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I I was kind of into, like, Mist and Riven, which are, like, point-and-click from a first-person perspective kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I did play Mist, but I played it when I was, like, nine years old. I was way too young. I just couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't get it. Um, so... This is the first one I've ever played. Um, I have a couple that I've bought. I just haven't tried them yet uh, because gamer behavior. I buy things <laughs> and I don't play them. Right. Um, so you're basically, you go into a room, you check for everything you can interact with. Sometimes you can pick up items. Sometimes you'll just get instructions or, or like little lore snippets or something. Sometimes you'll just click on something and it says, you know, the window's been shut for a long time. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Glad. Glad to know that. But this kind of made me wish that it had like a highlight 
everything that's interactable mm. button like mm-hmm. uh, Disco Elysium or games like that have. Because there are so many times when I thought I interacted with everything, but it just turns out that this couple of pixels over here on top of the table is actually something I can pick up and I need it to progress. Mm-hmm. And I think I made it through a couple of chapters before I was like, I have to get a guide. I'm not going to finish this game if I don't use a guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this game is particularly bad. Um, I've never seen another game do the thing where you have to interact with something twice. So mm-hmm. it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes uh, when you mouse over something you can interact with, you either have like a word bubble to talk to people, a hand to interact or grab it, and then a magnifying glass to look at it. So you might like look at something and he'll be like, oh, this is a pile of papers. And you're like, okay, cool, moving on. But right. but you might also be able to pick up that pile of papers. So you mm-hmm. have to interact with it twice, which doesn't like doesn't make sense at all. Like I don't I don't understand right. the function of that. I got caught with that a couple times too. Uh, probably not a couple, probably several times <laughs> too. Um yeah, I like and this got me thinking, uh like am I just bad at this game? Like, am I bad at these types of games or is this game bad at what it's doing? Because there were several times where like you pick up items. Sometimes you combine them with other items to make stuff. Sometimes you need to use your items on things in the environment. And there were so many times where I was like, I feel like I've combed this house. I've tried everything. I don't know what to do. Like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And then I check the guide and it's like, oh, you missed this item three rooms ago. Or like you said, you interacted with that item once. You should have interacted with it twice to mm-hmm. pick it up. I missed the little hand icon. And yeah, it just got me thinking, like, am I just bad or is this game too obtuse? I think from my limited experience, at least, that the game feels a little obtuse and unfortunately this is one specific area where the art style kind of hurts it because you literally are pixel hunting so if there is something that is like like you say like one or two pixels that's like i don't know a small bottle or like uh, a candle or something that you're supposed to pick up it might Mm -hmm. just look like a something on a table but not like it's not noticeable enough or I remember specifically there was a chapter where you needed to get sap to put a mask back together. Um, yeah. So I had the pieces of the mask and I kept on trying to put it back together and they were like, well, oh, you can't do that. And so like, like you said, I, I had no idea how to put it back together. And then finally I found, you know, there's one stump on one screen that I, I guess I just didn't look at cause it, it literally looks like it's part of the background. You would, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing outstanding about it. Um, so I, yeah. unfortunately I think it might be a little bit on the design end. Yeah. It just really made me wish for that highlight all items that are interactable button uh, mm-hmm. from some other games. Also, I, I played this on switch um, mm. and it runs great on switch, but using a control stick to mouse over everything on the screen is a lot more cumbersome than using a mouse uh, to to do that. And I think that might've played into it too. Mm -hmm. So I actually like a rare recommendation for me uh, to play this game on PC and not switch 
uh, if you can help it. Like, I think you can handle it if you play it on Switch, but using a mouse is way more helpful, I guess, mm-hmm. than using that control stick. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it, I can't imagine a computer that couldn't run this well. It's, it's such <laughs> yeah. a simple game, you know. Mm-hmm. The other thing that gave me frustration playing the game is there were several times where you would finish up a scene and the character would say, okay, I need to go here and talk to this person. But Mm -hmm. if you go to that place, that person's not there or they're not ready to talk to you or Mm -hmm. whatever. You, You can't progress. What you actually have to do is go do something else that the character didn't mention and if you don't do that, you can't progress. This was way worse in season two when you have yeah. many locations to go to. But there were so many times where it was like, I need to go to the church and talk to the the priest. And I went to the church and it's locked. Mm-hmm. And I go all around. There's no way to open up the church. What I had to do was go to a different place, talk to a different person who's not a priest, and then yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Very frustrating. Yeah, I definitely found that um, to be an issue in the second game specifically. There's a little bit of it in the first game, especially with the uh, levels that are a little bit more open, for a be- uh, lack of a better word. But since the second one does deal with a lot of diverse locations, um, it is really easy to, uh, you know, go to go to a place and be like, okay, I can't get in here. Like, what? this is the place I'm supposed to go. Like what, Mm -hmm. what could I possibly do? And, and a lot of, a lot of those conditions feel arbitrary too. So it's not even like, it's not even like you could be like, Oh, well, of course the church wasn't open because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. It's the church wasn't open because I don't even remember why that one happens. You, I think it literally is just, you talk to an unrelated person and the bell rings and then the church is open. So, yep. There were a lot of times when, exactly like you said, what whatever you need to do to trigger the church opening, if we're going to keep using this example, is not related to anything to do with the church or other situations. And this is a little bit more on me, maybe, for not totally experimenting. Just a lot of item interactions that don't make a whole lot of sense or like they're not super intuitive or you might not even consider to like try to combine these items because these items don't go together in real life. So mm-hmm. a lot of situations where I'm like, I need an item. Let me just literally every item I have, try to make it interact with every other item I have until I figure it out. And sometimes that worked. Sometimes it didn't because I missed a couple of pixels in a room, three rooms away, or I didn't return to a room that I thought I was done with. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, there's one that I can specifically think of when it's either in the maybe the first or second episode, but like in one of them, you find like a violin player and you can pick up sheet music on the ground from Mm -hmm. his room. But if you try to give him the sheet music, he doesn't do anything with it. There's a birdcage in the attic that has a bird feather in it. I don't, first of all, I don't know why you can't just like tip the cage over and grab the feather. But what the Mm -hmm. game wants you to do is like make a tube with the sheet music so you can blow the feather out of the cage. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's somehow the, the leap of logic that you're supposed to do by yourself. Yeah. 
And so I like I'm I'm not swearing off point and click games forever because I just have a feeling that this one's a bit too, you know, wonky with some of the interactions it wants you to do. But if this is the logical like things you're supposed to come to, conclusions you're supposed to come to when you're playing these games, then this this just might not be my genre because I had a hard time. Yeah. And to be fair, like oftentimes more modern, because uh, for better or worse, like the the I- item inventory puzzle thing is a big part of the genre. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of weird complexity is too also. Um, but a lot of times uh, more modern games will have built-in hint systems, which I think is at least something. Uh, yeah. It is kind of unfortunate that, there's just like nothing in this game though. Yep. Maybe that would be helpful. Um, I just, I wonder if this game is like banking on you having decades of experience playing this type of game, or if it's just, you know, they made this game, it wasn't their forte. They obviously switched genres completely when they Mm -hmm. made blasphemous and that game fucking rules. So it just might not be very well designed. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. So people may be asking, Dave, you sound like you had a real hard time. Like you didn't have any fun playing this game. Why did you keep playing it? So beside the uh, promise of podcasting with Jamie here, I really enjoyed the story and I love the music in this game. Like the soundtrack is excellent. I love the soundtrack in Blasphemous and this one has that same kind of like moody a lot of piano in the background when you're mm-hmm. walking around. Um, when the soundtrack goes bigger into like more orchestral stuff, I think that's really good too. Like the opening menu, or mm-hmm. the opening theme that plays at the beginning of each chapter is excellent. Um, you've probably heard that song by this point in the episode. And then they will often take the music away during scenes when you're when you're supposed to be kind of tense. And all you can hear is your footsteps. And we've talked about the sound design, but the sound of bottles falling to the ground or the sound of uh, walking on creaky floorboards, interacting with doorknobs that are locked, that jiggle when you try to open a locked mm-hmm. door. All of those sound effects are really good too. And they play huge into like the atmosphere that this game has. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that I thought of as we were talking about it is this game does a really incredible job of inc- uh, like incorporating actual voice recording into the sound effects too. So there'll mm-hmm. be, you know, points where, I don't know, there's a character running or you'll see someone hunched over praying and, and they're using actual like recorded voice clips. And for some reason, yeah. I don't know if it's just because the general aesthetic of it is so like, low tech quote unquote uh-huh. but like having those really clean voice lines in the game really like stands out and is almost like more scary yeah if that makes sense yeah because um there's no voice acting for the characters in right. the game so when you do hear like you said a, a character softly praying um, in the background or some creepy laughter coming from a room, three rooms away mm-hmm. that I think that stuff does hit harder because other than that, there is no voice acting. Yeah. So moving on into some final thoughts before uh, spoiler time, the question I've been asking uh, lately in these final thoughts sections is um, 
Jamie, what do you think about this game? And who would you recommend this game to? Um, I I think this is a good I'm I'm glad I played this game. Um I enjoyed playing it. Uh it has the trappings of its genre for better or worse. Um uh-huh. but I think all of the strengths that we mentioned are strong enough to pull me through the game and keep me interested. Um in terms of who I would recommend it to, that's I think a little bit harder because like Obviously, people that like Lovecraft stuff would love this. Um, I, I feel like this is such a good, in the same way that like Bloodborne is a really good expression of Lovecraftian horror, like this is a really good expression of that. Um, the problem mm-hmm. is that like the gameplay aspect of it is such a like <laughs> hurdle to get over that like if you weren't already at least a little bit genre savvy or like familiar with the gameplay, it might be like prohibitively difficult. Yeah. And it's, it's not like a, it's not like a gameplay rec, like a gameplay unrecommendation. What's the mm-hmm. opposite? I can't think uh, um, <laughs> a, a gameplay stay away because <laughs> there's no, like, because it's not active enough or something like that. Like I'm perfectly fine with, games where you're not killing stuff all the time. It's just that like, this was very frustrating to play through. Mm -hmm. I was pulled through the game by the mystery that you're uncovering. And I know we like barely touched on it, but I promise you it's cool. It's Mm -hmm. really cool. I just don't want to spoil it because this is, it's, it's a really cool thing to uncover. And if you, if you're Lovecraft savvy, maybe you will have an idea already of some stuff like that, but it's cool. I was pulled through by that. I was pulled through by the art and the music and stuff like that too. Uh, so I did finish this game. I mean, if I really fucking hated it, I would have just texted you, Jamie, and said, I, I don't <laughs> I don't want to play this anymore. Let's pick a different game. Yeah. Uh, so I did make it through. I'm not shy about using a guide though. Like mm-hmm. if you're someone who will not use a guide, uh, you might find this to be too frustrating to get through. Yeah. Or maybe you just, you know, you get on with this type of game better than I do. So I will recommend this for people who've played a bunch of point and clicks and Mm -hmm. can kind of identify some of those trappings that you, that we've talked about. Um, and people who love Lovecrafty and stuff. I think this is excellent as far as that goes with my limited exposure to Lovecraft, uh, literature and stuff. Like I said, I've played more Lovecrafty and video games than, read than like Lovecraft stories that I've read, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's good. It's, it's a good story. It's a good mystery. And uh, we're going to get into that in the spoiler section. But before that, a little bit of housekeeping, the best things to do to support tales from the backlog are to uh, hit subscribe. If you haven't already, if you've enjoyed the episode, or if you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a, a rating or review. If your platform allows that that's Apple podcasts, Spotify, podcast addict, stuff like that. Um, Tales from the Backlog has a Patreon that I would appreciate it if you uh, supported, if you wish. And Tales from the Backlog has a Discord server where people will be in there talking about horror games uh, throughout October. Also consider listening to a top three podcast where each episode we pick a topic and do a top three. Uh, That's a fun show. Really recommend that. And uh, if you want to hear more Jamie, go back and listen to that Silent Hill 2 episode 
I think that's an excellent listen. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, it's spoiler time for The Last Door. All right, Jamie and I are back and time for spoilers for The Last Door. So I guess I want to give like the background information first, like the stuff that they discover first, and then we can go through the events of the door or the events of The Last Door. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there's another world, and this is like anytime I get this kind of thing in a Lovecraftian story or otherwise, just hook this shit in my veins. The idea that there's <laughs> yeah. the idea that there's another world, another dimension out there that is right next to ours, but we just can't perceive it. And the fact that we can't perceive it is good. We do not want to see what's in there. Mm-hmm. So um, there's another world contained behind this thing called the veil. And it contains, there's a lot of proper nouns here. <laughs> it contains what's called the final truth the first language and the verb, all of ways, all of which are ways that you can kind of shape the world to your um, desires, I suppose. If you find this, you're able to use it to control the world or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, this was your understanding too. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems they don't really expand much on like, like there are characters that want to look through the veil, but right. um, until the very, very end of the game, they don't really make it clear like what what you get out of that, other than mm-hmm. just like terrible and unknowable secrets about <laughs> the universe. Right. So this, I think it's the end of season one where you find out like what some of them are after, which is this you know, final truth or something like that. The thing that's going to allow them unlimited power or something like that. Right. Specifically, I think what they mention is the ability to like recreate the, the world or possibly the universe, however Mm -hmm. they see fit. Right. Yeah. And I, I think they said something to the effect of like the human world, the world that we live in is not really like the true world this world beyond the veil is the real thing mm-hmm. uh yeah so beyond the veil uh there is a region uh with a very lovecraftian sounding name i'm not even <laughs> gonna try and pronounce it starts with a z it's got apostrophes and shit mm-hmm. not even gonna try to pronounce it inside of that region uh there's a portal that leads to this uh, other world that portal is called the last door the title of the game mm-hmm. um and uh it was uh, created by ancients or something like that. And you have a bunch of characters in this game who know about this and they're trying to access this. Um, some of them access it on purpose and some of them kind of accidentally access it, which mm-hmm. is another thing I really love about this type of cosmic horror. The fact that some people accidentally find it and it just fucking destroys them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is. Um, part of why Beechworth kills himself uh, in the prologue, but we'll get to him later. So the game starts with DeVitt uh, going to Beechworth's mansion 
And, uh, this, uh, this was just like one jump scare after another. (laughs) (laughs) I got jump scared by the birds so many times in this Mm -hmm. opening chapter. Yeah. Um, there's definitely the one where you, you like leave the room and then you come back and the room is gone all red and there's Mm -hmm. like just a bunch of crows sitting around and the music cuts and i think they do that like jump scare sting right um and again like when you're in the room you're never in direct danger but like it's so unsettling just having all of these crows sitting around yep it's really jarring when they arrive and then when you leave the room and come back they're gone again Mm -hmm. yeah and very creepy uh, but the first chapter is basically just Devitt going through Beechworth's house, uh, making your way up to the attic where he hung himself. Um, so you find Beechworth's body and then another jump scare when you kind of, you see him and he he's, you know, oh, my beautiful friend, what have you done? And then a million crows bust through the window <laughs> and start eating the body. And mm-hmm. I was like, what have I gotten myself into? Because that's like two or three jump scares in a half hour. Yeah, there's definitely a crow theme going on if you haven't picked that up yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, after that, DeVitt goes to um, his old boarding school, which has turned into kind of a makeshift hospital, Mm -hmm. which is very creepy just describing it like that. Um, He discovers that his old kind of mentor figure um, is still at the boarding school, everyone there, all the people who came in, like the doctors and nurses who came in to work there, they're just like, yeah, we, uh, he was here when we got here. We just kind of leave him alone. Mm -hmm. You know, that idea and that idea that like, there's this guy who's been here longer than anybody else. No one knows what he's even doing. Mm -hmm. That's very creepy by itself. Yeah. And, and I think specifically, be, and, you know, we'll talk about what happened at the school before, but the fact that it started out as a school and turned into a mental asylum, like specifically mm-hmm. seems very fitting. Yeah. There's a couple of like side characters that kind of add to this like creepy mental asylum um, vibe or atmosphere too. There's like a guy who's kind of like in fits basically all the time and he's constantly got nurses around him when you get the nurse to leave you can finally talk to him and he like has this i think he has like this moment of lucidity and he's like don't trust the groundskeeper Mm -hmm. and then the next time you go look for him he's gone and so that was creepy there's also uh, another person who um is there with his sister and she's been hiding letters uh, that mm-hmm. he's been sending and but and like gaslighting him into thinking he's crazy and that's that was weird too yeah that that situation is always interesting to me because like that those characters aren't important but there's so no. much that like is communicated in that short little snippet of story yeah and even before you find like the actual evils that are happening at the school, you see like very quickly through talking to these little side characters that like no one at this asylum, this hospital is like doing well. (laughs) Yeah. Even like the nurses and the doctors are all kind Mm -hmm. of struggling. And it's, uh, it's like specifically a religious hospital. And I always think like, like, I guess maybe it was because I was like raised in the church, but I always think like, 
corruption of religious iconography stuff is really cool and interesting. Mm -hmm. You see that a lot in Blasphemous too. Yeah, (laughs) it's a thing with the game kitchen, I think. Uh Yeah. So um, what you find down there is uh, DeWitt's old um, professor is uh, with the help of like the groundskeeper. I think his name's Baldwin. Mm-hmm. is uh sacrificing patients at the hospital uh to something and you kind of uncover like this backstory that while devitt was at this school he and some classmates along with this professor um opened up the veil and it's kind of unclear to me whether they knew exactly what they were doing. There's some backstory that I think it's Beechworth's father learned mm-hmm. about the veil and then passed on that knowledge to Beechworth. Um, but I never got the feeling that they knew exactly what horrors awaited them behind the veil, you know? Yeah. Not until at least, at least the way that it's presented this time around, it definitely doesn't, it seems like they're like, I don't know, like a, a like a, a club that gets together to like debate ideals and somehow they, uh, you know, stumbled across this, this ability to open up uh, a portal to another world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It started out as like the dead poet society, basically. That's exactly what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, turned into, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's do some rituals and, uh, see what happens, which, Mm -hmm never going to end well in a story like this um yeah and then uh you you find this professor i i think i think this is the chapter i get some of these mixed up i think this is the one that opens with the professor like Mm self-flagellating um and then at the end he's blind so you have this um is he blind blind or is he deaf i think he's blind because you have to like sneak around him yeah yeah, you have to sneak around and then um eventually he finds you. Uh you have a little talk and then he sets himself on fire, if mm-hmm. I remember right, mm-hmm. which is again fucking ridiculous. Like the 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 things that are happening, like the way that this snowball keeps getting bigger uh, as you go along. This is only chapter 2 and we've already like gotten this far. Yeah, already crazy. two people have killed themselves. Um it's pretty obvious like some pretty serious shit is going on, even if you don't really know exactly what it is. Yeah. And then um, I believe this is the chapter that ends with DeVitt being um, captured. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He gets bonked on the head. And then you wake up in the beginning of chapter three inside of a coffin. Mm -hmm. And this, this is one of those scenes where those sound effects really, they're really, really good. Like the sound Mm -hmm. of him, like, hyperventilating and banging on this coffin lid even though the screen is pitch black it's really really like stressful that short little part and then if i remember correctly you can even hear maybe digging sounds or the sounds of like a grave being filled in yeah sounds about right so but he breaks out of that um and he breaks out of the coffin and just you can continue to just wander the school grounds for a little Mm -hmm. bit or the the hospital grounds for a little bit even though he was, <laughs> they are attempting to bury him alive. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just thought of something. I never got, I never got like a true thing about like why they were, or how they were sacrificing the patients. Mm. 
later on, we learn that one of the ways to lift the veil is through terror, like sheer terror. And so is this like burying someone alive a way to get them into this state where they can go in? It might be, because if I remember correctly, the next chapter is one that feels like dreamy enough that it might be trying, like supposed to represent that, that in between place. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it, it, you know, one of the things that's very pervasive um, thematically about the in-between world is like the usage of fog and like obfuscation. Um, And that's the chapter where you do the weird fog sound puzzle. So I wonder if that's, that's what that is supposed to represent. Yeah, that could be. And now that I'm thinking about it, chapter four is the one where you're going through those city streets, right? And you're following. I think that's chapter three. Is that chapter three? Yeah, I think so. Well, regardless, after you wake up from being in the coffin, um, you have a chapter where you're walking through these uh, city streets and you're following this person who's like, seems like they're leading you somewhere and then you have to do adventure game stuff to (laughs) unlock how to go where that person is Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, And it is kind of foggy sometimes. And you're right. You do do that, that puzzle uh, where you're, they give you an order of like, they'll say like ocean, wind, etc., mm-hmm. uh, and you have to go to the kind of doorway, not doorway path that has that corresponding sound. Yeah, and yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to like. It seems like an interesting puzzle for people in real life for how to navigate through this. You know, mm-hmm. like if you were actually there, that would be an interesting way to navigate. In the game, it was just, you know, it wasn't that difficult. I just took a screenshot of the note that told me what order Mm. to do stuff in and then followed it that way. Yeah, I agree. Um, It also, uh, if you have the closed captions turned on, it'll show you, um, if there's multiple sound sources, it'll place them on the top of the screen where they are. So if you're like standing in front of crows, but you need to go to the right where the shore is like in the middle of the screen will be crows and on on the right of the screen it'll have like a little thing for shore and then when you get far enough over it'll be centered again which is cool yeah that makes sense and i was when you described that closed captioning in the non-spoiler part it made me think that this would be less like subtitles and more of like subtitles plus accessibility Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of confirms like that seems like a big accessibility thing uh, for people who may be hard of hearing Mm -hmm. that laughing guy in the bathtub is also in chapter three, I believe, Mm -hmm. which is one of the creepiest, like reverse things. Like I expected something to jump out of the bathtub, you Uh know, that's the one where you hear this creepy laughing from several rooms away as you're going through this building. And then you can finally open up the bathroom and it's, yeah, pull back the shower curtain. There's nothing there. It's just a recording. Mm-hmm. Did you turn on the recording again after you turn it off? Yeah. Yeah. Very creepy. It's someone, it's like a, it's not the laugh track anymore. It's someone crying. Mm-hmm. Very weird. So chapter four, um, if I remember, starts to like fill in the picture of what happened to DeVitt and his mm-hmm. friends and uh, the professor. So 
like we said, they accidentally opened up the veil doing that experiment. And beyond the veil, there is a kind of protecting force or monster or something Mm -hmm. that tries to keep people out of this region that I'm not going to try to pronounce, keep them away from that final truth or whatever. So um, they have drawn the ire of that thing Mm -hmm. by opening the portal, which is another just very, it's not enough that there's another world in there. There's a guardian in there that they've angered. Right. And that's, that's the giant crow thing. I mean, like you hardly ever see it totally i think it maybe only shows it once uh but there's obviously like reoccurring crow imagery um there's the the part where you look through the keyhole that you mentioned earlier that's like the jump scare is a giant red crow eye um right you know and you i didn't really think about this but you are kind of unlocking like this like what's what's real here and what's not like if the coffin like the buried alive thing was enough mm-hmm. to get devit into this like kind of middle place then a lot of the stuff that's happening here may be real but not in the way that they show you yeah when i was playing uh devit's chapters i definitely had a bigger sense because he also if i remember correctly has a lot of like in between or like interstitial pieces even either at the beginning of an episode or at the end of it where it's Mm -hmm. just like him walking to the left through the fog and you know maybe there's like some text pop-ups or he's saying something to himself but it it definitely has a more like dreamlike quality to it um there's a lot more like weird supernatural stuff that happens um yeah as opposed to the second season, which feels until the last chapter, I would say a lot more grounded. Yeah. So we kind of get the puzzle filled in, I think in chapter four, a lot about like what happened and then what was the result of that, Mm -hmm. you know? So they opened up this, um, they opened up the veil, uh, the, And then they, I think some of them like continued to do this, like they continued to meet and like do this dead poet society, but Mm -hmm. evil, you know? (laughs) Um, And the effects of this are, are starting to be like revealed. So there's one of them uh, that just like died, I think, because of all of the, like the mental stress of this Um, was their name. Did I write this down? Ashcroft, maybe something um, like that. That sounds right. I think he's the yeah. one that started the club, if I remember correctly. One of them died uh, because of all the stress. Uh, Devitt is left with amnesia, mm-hmm. uh, which is why he doesn't remember this. It's why this is a mystery game. And so the other members uh, saw that he didn't remember anything and chose not to like fill him in. You know, right. <laughs> if you wake up one day with no memory of what's been going on. And they're like, Hey, actually we've been like going into this like other dimension. We're being chased by a demon. Uh, everything's fucked. So try to process that real quick. Like they're just like, no, just don't tell him. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also, I mean, they don't reveal it yet, but there's also further motivation for keeping him in the dark that Mm -hmm. the club has later on. 
Yeah. And to be honest, some of the stuff with the playwright, which is the the club's like or club turned cult, yeah, uh, their name. Um, some of the stuff with their motivations other than trying to get in there and shape the world to their liking or recreate the world to their liking. Mm-hmm. A lot of that stuff went over my head or in one ear and out the other. Um, yeah. And I have a little, not a little habit. I have a habit of if I'm frustrated in the game, sometimes like I will just, I'll miss story stuff. Mm-hmm. And I did some wiki diving this morning preparing for this episode, but I, I wasn't going to replay the game or anything like that right, or watch yeah. a let's play or something. Right. And to be fair, the way that's communicated, again, is not always straightforward either. So, Yeah, they're giving you a lot of pieces in a nonlinear order mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. So putting some of this stuff together, I give a lot of credit to the people who wrote stuff in the wiki or some of the YouTube recaps that I watched mm-hmm. uh, for doing this, because some of this just didn't stick. Um, but... This stuff, like the results of this one person dying, David getting amnesia, this is why Beechworth killed himself in the beginning, because he just doesn't mm-hmm. want to live with um, all of this pain and trauma that he's that he feels like is obviously feels like is his fault or that right. not. <laughs> I was going to say he feels like he had a role in it. He did have a he role. He definitely in it. had a it role. It is in partly it. <laughs> his fault. Um, but yeah, this is why. And this is uh, the first big kind of mystery that we had why did he kill himself Mm -hmm. and this is why yeah and i think right at the end here they start to uh introduce the the like uh drama mask motif and the robes Mm -hmm. which is a really cool like spooky visual motif that kind of follows throughout the rest of the next season yeah i'm glad you liked it too i thought the whole theater uh, theming of the second season was really cool. Even if I didn't totally understand <laughs> all of like that story stuff, I at least thought that theming was cool. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's multiple endings for season one. Not that I know of. No. Yeah. So, um, Oh, this has another thing that I really like, uh, just like in bloodborne where, uh, David goes to his friend Alexander's house Mm-hmm. And Alexander's been living in the veil, like projected out of his physical body for a long time. Like his body is in bad shape, mm-hmm. just like Mikolash in Bloodborne. And when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, that's super cool. Because like the, <laughs> the, uh, the part where Mikolash in Bloodborne, when he dies and he thinks he's going to go back to his body, but his body's been dead for a yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something about Bloodborne that I loved. Mm-hmm. This guy's not dead, but his body is in rough shape because yeah. uh, he's not been inhabiting it for a long time. <laughs> his mansion was super creepy. Another just fucking creepy, dark ass mansion. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so he wakes up or you wake him up and he injects Devit with the serum again. Yeah. Devit goes into the veil and I think he has like a change of heart. And he decides to seal it away, like Mm -hmm. seal himself in there, but keep everyone else away from this uh, final truth because he's remembered why all this is happening. Yeah, I think I don't know that it's necessarily outlined in the first season, but uh, it definitely comes comes to light in the second season that, yeah, he's 
he's basically trying to close the last door so nobody else can do this. He comes to that realization as he learns about like what is happening. I guess he comes to that realization that like, hey, this has to stop. We, right, like, we can't keep doing this. Two other people died. One other person probably will die. Like, this mm-hmm. is no good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed season one that kind of build up all the, the revelations, learning about what the veil is, what's hiding in there, the experiment gone wrong, like, well, not gone wrong, but the ramifications that they could have never predicted mm-hmm. of these experiments. I really enjoyed uncovering this stuff. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of fun. And like I said, even if it's not really like directly communicated to you, there's a lot of like really good I don't know, like emotional resonance in what's going on. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, you can, you can feel the impact of like the dramatic scenes, even if you don't know, like, is this happening in the real world? Like, is this the way that my character is interpreting what's happening? You know, like, I think that uh, for as interesting as the story ends up being, that stuff is kind of secondary to like the emotional connection that you feel with like whatever your character is experiencing. Yeah. I just thought like, just thought of, um, so if this is kind of what your character's experiencing, whether it's real or not, um, it got me thinking about how a lot of Lovecraftian games will introduce some kind of like sanity Mm -hmm. mechanic or something like that. This game doesn't have a sanity meter or something. And I think I like this better as like a depiction of DeVitt's probably losing it a little bit learning about this stuff rather than having a literal meter um, Mm -hmm. on your screen or something like that that says, hey, man, this meter gets filled up. Your mind's going to break or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I like this as, as a depiction of him kind of slowly losing it, but still moving forward with the quest, I guess. Yeah, it, it's a more like diegetic way of, of uh, expressing that idea. The end of season one also introduces Dr. Wakefield, who um, is starting to like follow DeVitt, and then he takes over as the main character in season two uh, with, um, I forget what the guy's, who, who's his partner? He has a partner. There's it's Yeah, a, there's another doctor who's like, uh, like an occultist or like a, yeah, you yeah. know, specialist in that, in that kind of stuff that is German, I think. Um, and he yeah. runs around with him, but I don't remember what his name was. Yeah. And so he he's with you, and I kind of like that transition from, like, Wakefield has no idea what he's getting himself into. The doctor tells him that, like, several times. He's mm-hmm. like, hey, if we do this, there's no coming back. You will not be the same. Right. And uh, Wakefield's like, yeah, I got to find my patient. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really funny that um, 
this, so like the first game starts with a character chasing after another character, right? And then the second right. game starts the exact same way. Like mm-hmm. now, now your protagonist from the first game is the character being chased after, and you've got another protagonist who's chasing after him. It it mm-hmm. kind of humorously suggests just like an infinite line of, of <laughs> yeah. Lovecraft protagonists continuously right. like falling doc- after Dr. Each Wakefield's other. one of Dr. Wakefield's like acquaintances is gonna go chase after <laughs> right. him. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh yeah, I like that transition where about halfway through this, Wakefield's partner dies mm-hmm. of a mysterious he just gets sick and dies pretty quickly, and it's never explained like what it is. Yeah, I mean I think just because, like, for, for, uh, like, thematic wholeness, I, I assume it must be related to, like, the Guardian or something, because it would be weird if he just, like, randomly died of the flu or yeah. something, but. I, that's, that's what I assumed, though. I assumed he just got, you know, got the flu and died or something. And then after that, what I was getting to is, like, Wakefield is like semi prepared to take this on. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't get the feeling that he is like an expert to the point that this other guy was, mm-hmm. but now he's lost his, you know, mentor expert buddy mm-hmm. and he's got to take it on the rest of the way himself. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. Uh, David and, um, and his therapist make an interesting contrast in main characters because I, I don't know if this is me reading into it too much, but it feels like DeVitt was a lot more like affected by the stuff that he was seeing mm-hmm. um, and like reacted to it more. Whereas the therapist character like feels like he is at least able to keep his head together for most of the um, most of the second season. And I don't yeah. know if that's maybe just a, a matter of, again, like a lot of the second season feels much more like a grounded, almost like a detective story than it does, you know, until it starts to get into the weird, really like culty stuff at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Wakefield is definitely a lot more scientific about mm-hmm. what's going on. And I, I wonder if, so David had, amnesia but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that his brain was healed or like his psyche was healed right by from the things that happened before so maybe he was just a lot closer to the breaking point even though he seemed normal because he just d- didn't remember it mm-hmm. um whereas wakefield has had no experience with this yeah uh, up until then yeah that definitely could be the case too so i actually wrote down less like beat by beat stuff for season two, maybe because like it is, like you said, there are a lot of parts in it where you do go talk to random people who tell you about another person. And then you go talk to that other person who tells you about this location. Then you go to that location and you might find some creepy shit there, but there was a lot less like, I guess we already know a lot of the story. That was kind of what's interesting about season two is you know what happened to DeVitt. Mm-hmm. You know actually a lot about what's going on. And you're playing as a character who's filling in kind of like he's learning 80% the same stuff that you already know. And then there's some stuff on in the margins that's also getting filled in in season two. Uh, maybe that's why I didn't write down as much. But that it is kind of interesting. Like 
that's not always a really successful narrative thing, right? When you know exactly what's going on, but the characters mm-hmm. are like, I don't know what's going on here. Well, and in- what's interesting specifically about season two is for as much as it is centered around uh, Wakefield looking for DeVitt, what he ends up finding mostly is like, like you said, like background story about the first game. So it's almost like it is a direct sequel, but it's also kind of like a prequel as well. Yeah. And a lot of it's centered on how people discovered that fear is the thing that can open the last door. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very cool way to open it up. And I don't know if this is something that's in other Lovecraft's stories or Lovecraftian uh, media, things that were inspired, but the idea that this the key to this door is you experiencing primal fear, and mm-hmm. then that will unlock it uh, for you. Yeah, it, it is a cool idea. It's I, not something that I can think of being in any any other like Lovecraftian media, but it is a cool like expression of that like you you know so much that you're you're literally driven crazy and then the the next piece of that is like of of course you you are able to like interact with otherworldly or you know parallel universe kind of stuff because your brain is so like outside of normal conventions at this point mhm yeah and so a lot of the stuff that I found very cool in season two is the kind of the process of learning that fear is the key, mm-hmm. you know? So we have that um, that war veteran named Captain Skid who just in the middle of a battle was so scared that he entered the veil and he had an encounter, I, I believe, with that, that guardian. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is really cool, like the idea that this happens naturally to people mm-hmm. in that in those moments of intense fear, like in a war. Yeah, uh, and, and they don't really do a really good uh, job of explaining like what happened with him specifically, because like you said, they do mention that he he's like notably one of the few people to actually like encounter the crow and survive. Yeah, I, I and I don't think they went into detail about how he did that. Mm-mm. And that's kind of fine with me. It would be kind of lame if he was like, yeah, all you have to do is shoot it in the leg and run right. away or something like that. But yeah, they do. Um, there's another part towards the end where they introduce like this sort of like folk horror Irish uh, Island that yeah. might also have another like elder God living on it. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things they mention is that it doesn't like uh, iron, so like that might be a might be a thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, it could be. Yeah, when you find that war veteran, I think he's in an opium den. Den, if I remember mm-hmm. that right. Yeah. Which you know, obviously, this guy was so traumatized by this experience that he's you find him in an opium den, not doing well. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. And so this weird, you know, like island that you mentioned, um, Irish Gaelic, I don't know. Uh, is it in Ireland? Did they ever say? Uh, I don't know that they say specifically um, the words. I mean, I don't know that much about like ancient European languages, but the words right. look Irish or Gaelic. 
definitely in that area, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this this game takes place in the UK. So right. yeah, that island was uh was interesting as the the people on that island are going through this kind of like ritual uh night. I was frustrated by gameplay on this island, like mm-hmm. going to all of these different places in orders that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. But the things like the lore, the backstory that you uncover there was really, really satisfying. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of a hole that are like a hole in the earth. That's too big. <laughs> right. You have there. Very cool. Um, and is that where like the other Eldritch God is supposed to be inhabiting? Yeah. They, 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 it's like represented as a snake or a dragon. And I think they refer to it as like the crooked one. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, a couple times, which is definitely like a great Lovecraft uh, Eldritch monstrosity name. Yeah. And then um, in the uh, mansion there, not David, Wakefield finds the um, the tunnel that's constructed there mm-hmm. where they're experimenting with this fear as the driving um, fear as the key to open the last door. And I love that, like this very low tech, like DeVitt and his buddies, they made a serum to induce this fear. Mm-hmm. In this place, they literally, they're like, here's this tunnel. There's a monster down there. It's pitch black. We're just going to put you down there and let you unlock it. Like, you're mm-hmm. going to get scared and we're going to lock the door. And there's like a a primitive like microphone listening yeah. device down there where they can listen. It's real fucked up, but I like it. It, it is really cool uh, the way that like like you say that the a lot of the second season is people that have realized that that like primal fear component is important but like figuring out ways and this is ultimately like what the the playwright is after also is like figuring mm-hmm. out ways to access that primal fear in like a safe environment yeah actually that monster that you encounter is the other a uh, group member from yeah. the students. Just remember that he didn't die. He became this monster. He got effectively died, but uh, he became this monster. So it makes sense then that like they're using the serum now because that is, you don't have to put someone in a room with a monster mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, induce this fear anymore. But I, I believe this is the way that Wakefield eventually does, um, access the veil is he just goes down in this tunnel uh, yeah, with the, with the right. monster. And yeah. then you have, there is a, a kind of like chase thing where you're running through a bunch of rooms. And then if I, I am shaky on the details, but if I remember right, it suddenly he's in the place with the playwright. Yeah, I think so. Could be wrong. It's, I didn't write that down should have, but I didn't. Yeah. And then um, I think the final, the final chapter takes place in that sort of like uh, in between worlds right. place. So you're trying to get to the last door. Yeah, and and this, I mean, like this this area is really good for. Uh, it has this cool sort of uh, rhythm where you go to a location, you do a puzzle, and then you know, your character is like, ah, in the, in the corners, I see shadows that reveal, and then it'll do like a flashback to, you know, a short scene where one of our previous characters or protagonists is like 
interacting with an environment that we were in either as uh, DeVitt or the doctor um, and they're right. doing the sort of like prequel stuff, um, I, I, which is, I think a really, really clever way to like uh, sort of revisit those locations and give you a little bit of context. Yeah. And I like the kind of in between space as a playable space too. It works mm-hmm. really well for like this setting because for a while I kind of assumed that like you open up the veil and you're immediately in hell basically, mm-hmm. but that's not how it is. There's this inhabitable space. I mean, it's dangerous and there's this guardian thing trying to keep you away from the last door, but it's not like you enter and immediately lose your mind or immediately get killed by demons. Right. There's an inhabitable space in there, which is even more cool and creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the areas where they really get to have like fun with the visual design of the, mm-hmm. the levels. Like for a while I found it to be a little bit confusing to navigate, but um, there's just like stuff like, you know, you'll you'll go from one area that doesn't seem to connect to another area, or there's like a like a mirror that you pass through that will go into like a reflected version of the room yeah. you are just in, um, yeah. and just all sorts of like weird, like cool visuals. Um, throughout the game, they do a really good job of um, playing with foreground and background. Um, Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you can walk into a scene where there's uh, stuff that's like in front of the camera um, Mm -hmm. as well as being background setting. And I think it's really good in this, this area specifically too. Yeah. There were a lot of um, places in this area that seemed impossible, you Mm -hmm. know, like staircases that are too big and stuff like that. And I really like that as you're in this in-between space that's halfway in reality and halfway not. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really cool. And so this way, you actually do have a choice at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. So what did you do at the end of the game uh, regarding going through the last door or not? So I chose to go through it, but I almost let the curtain close because I wasn't sure... So, like, I wanted to save DeVitt. Like, I felt bad for him. Um, yeah. But, like, the way that the guy, um, like, words, like, what you're supposed to do or, like, what the choice is, is a little bit confusing. So, like, I thought he wanted me to go through to stop DeVitt from, like, remaking the world, not to, like, save him, per se, but... Okay. Yeah, I I got the impression that he's still pretty driven by saving DeVitt, whether saving him from himself or just saving Mm -hmm. him from whatever's in there. So I also went in. Also, like, I don't remember it being a choice that I, like, deliberated over. It seemed like a pretty natural thing. Like, I don't think Wakefield would have turned away at that point, but you can. You can just not do it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's also one of the only places in the game, I think, where, like, this the scene will advance without you. So, mm-hmm. like, if you're just seeing the curtain close and, like, mousing around to see interactables, like, there's just one thing that you can do in that room. And 
I'm not sure that I like that there's a choice and only one choice mm-hmm. in the whole game, basically, right at the end, when you may not even realize there's a choice. Yeah. But whether it's because you are role-playing Wakefield and you want to save DeVitt, or you're a person who's playing a video game and wants to see <laughs> more video game, you go in the door, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you go in, um, you find DeVitt, and uh, you allow DeVitt to leave, but Wakefield stays behind. Mm-hmm. Um to i don't i wasn't clear on why he had to stay behind did you remember that i i think the idea is just somebody has to be on the other side so they can close the door yeah i i I don't have a good idea and i'm trying to think of like a theory why you know because it's not Mm -hmm. like it's not a literal door that can only be closed from one side yeah i suppose you're right someone has to be there and wakefield sacrifices himself basically Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, you know, a, a bittersweet little ending because Wakefield seems like a a good dude, and yeah. who knows what who knows how Devitt is going to be when he makes it back to the real world. Well, so I have a I have a question for you about that ending. Then, okay. um, so the the ending is like him in his apartment. He's like, oh, I got to my apartment. I've been away so long. Everything was dusty. You know, I looked out on the rainy streets of um, London. And then I believe the last thing that he says is like, I remembered the motto of our group, which is mm-hmm. what, nobody else can know. Nobody don't yeah, know. Things. See that no one knows. Right. Yeah. So do you think the implication is that he then kills himself? I wouldn't say I got that, okay. but I would say that he's kind of resolved to keep this a secret. Okay. Knowing now that someone's there keeping the door shut or something like that, and knowing mm-hmm. that he kind of blocked off the playwright from accessing that place now, mm-hmm. that he would be kind of like, this secret dies with me, gotcha. you know, whether it's right now or whenever he dies naturally, I guess. Mm, okay. What did you think? Um, I got the impression that he killed himself, but I also like default expect the worst ending possible from every Lovecraft story, because that tends to be <laughs> the way they go. So there uh-huh. would be like a certain irony in uh, Wakefield sacrificing himself to, save devitt only for devitt to then commit suicide once he got back to the real world and that would fit too i mean not to like justify why someone's killing themselves but in this story Mm -hmm. the things that he's seen he's arguably seen more than the other characters that committed suicide Mm -hmm. they couldn't handle what what they had experienced and what pain and stuff they had caused so that would also make sense Mm-hmm. Um, seems like it would be a hell of a secret to keep for the rest of your I know, natural right? life. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like you know, he's gonna write a journal somewhere, and then, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> ten years later, his like grandson is gonna come into the apartment, and the whole thing starts over again. Mm-hmm. The Last Door, season three, mm-hmm. set you know sixty years in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's what people do in this. It's it's very handy and also very. Um, unfortunate that everyone writes down all the terrible things they've done in a <laughs> <Right>. journal <laughs> yeah so uh were there any other kind of plot beats or like i don't know just flavor things that you enjoyed and wanted to mention 
Um, I did, I, not specific plot beats, but I, as I was playing it, I was, um, really impressed by how, like, holistically it incorporated Lovecraft without actually, like, doing any specific, like, mythos stuff. So, like, there's Uh no Cthulhu, there's no Azathoth, there's none of that. Um, Mm -hmm. there is, like, a dream world, kind of. Um, but, like, you know, they have, obviously, like, yellow is an important color in in the game. Um, Mm -hmm. there's, you have the, like, the, the musician who's driven crazy by, like, trying to perfect a single piece of music. Like, all of Uh this stuff that's, like, thematically a part of, like, Lovecraftian mythos without actually, uh, making specific references. And I think that's really, like, cool and a neat way to incorporate that yeah from my understanding lovecraft a lot of like the actual lovecraft stories use artists right as Mm -hmm. the people who are more susceptible or more open to these otherworldly things right yeah the idea is that they're like you know more sensitive or whatever because of their creative abilities right do you know what uh i'm looking this up i don't remember if they even tell you um, what DeWitt's job was. He's a professor. Okay. Yeah. He teaches philosophy. That makes sense. His, yeah. <laughs> because of his, his little dead poet society yeah. club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of like how like there is a monster in this game and you do mm-hmm. get little like glimpses of it, but it's not like one of the things I really don't like about that call of Cthulhu video game is that the monster gets out and it, it just becomes a game about avoiding the monster mm-hmm. or dealing with the monster. Um, I think it's the shambler in that game. Whereas in this game, the monster's there and the threat of the monster is always there, but this is, it's not a game about a monster that right. you're unleashing mm-hmm. or summoning or something like that. And it really like the, like I said before, the thing that I like the most about the Lovecraft mythos the thing that lovecraft thought was cool and scary is this world beyond that should not be uncovered people uncover it sort of by accident or maybe totally by accident and then it just breaks them because they can't handle what's there and Mm -hmm. i think this game does a great job of that and not just like people see it and instantly go crazy they see it they experience it and different people get affected in different ways. And then mm-hmm. that is what kind of drives some of the other people crazy. Right. Or even just the idea that like human history as we know it or we understand it is a complete farce. You know, there are yeah. a couple of characters that uh, you get diary entries from that are like, you know, oh, I can't believe that this this isn't really what happened, you know, like how can we have been fooled this whole time kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. The idea that the human world as we know it is not the real world and that Mm -hmm. the real world is something that you couldn't possibly comprehend is, uh, yeah, very cool. And the motivation for some characters to find that final truth and reshape what we think is the real world, but it's, yeah, like just a little fabrication. You can... If you know the language, the capital L language, you can do what you want with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really um, cool. 
The other thing that I wanted to to touch on that I think is impressive, and like this is not an issue anymore, really, so much, but like you know, obviously, it's hard to have a conversation about Lovecraft without like mentioning the unfortunate racial undertones to his <laughs> writing. Um, yep. And and while this game does like exclusively deal with white European people, it also completely sidesteps any of the weird like. Uh, racist undertone like tribalism yeah. uh ancient african peoples Cults. whatever yeah completely which is really nice <laughs> yep the cult members in this game are the white european men right, right. it's yeah. not these kind of barbarians uh mm-hmm. that some of the cults in the other stories are yeah yeah that's a good point and i didn't think of it because it's not in the game at all right yeah it's yeah totally possible to fully understand lovecraft ideas without including the stuff that doesn't need to be included right Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah it so in my like limited exposure to lovecraft stories and stories influenced by lovecraft um i think this is a very cool depiction and one that seems to understand the cool things and not just like isn't cthulhu crazy like what if cthulhu attacked uh Uh same with like like darkest dungeon does a a really good job with that too that same kind of like uncovering ancient things that didn't need to be uncovered and here's the result someone's got to go clean this up Uh Um, and i just wondered if you felt the same way so it's it's an interesting dichotomy i think visual media is like really uniquely positioned to capture a lot of like the emotional impact of Lovecraftian horror in a way, at least for me that like reading it doesn't. Um, But the unfortunate thing about Lovecraftian horror is a big component of it is that like unknown. Right. And like Mm -hmm. you can, in a book, you can have a character say, you know, I, I glimpsed the ineffable, I saw impossible angles, uh, you know, characters coming from degrees that don't exist. Like, that mm-hmm. works in the written word, but the trick is then, how do you represent that? Which is where a lot of the visual media falls down. But what I like about this is, again, like, it it represents the ideas and the themes like kind of in the same way that like Bloodborne does not obviously like two completely different games gameplay wise, but in terms of like the themes and the ideas and the things that the characters do and the way that they interact with the world uh, feels very typical of Lovecraft protagonists. Mm -hmm. It may be one reason why this game succeeds in that because they don't try to show you too much of stuff that you would maybe be tempted to show because it would be really cool visually Mm -hmm. like it would be really tempting if you're making a game or a movie or something like that to have a really cool lovecraft monster and have that be a a driving force where like we talked about earlier you only see that bird creature one time Mm -hmm. and you see its eye and that's it. That's all you mm-hmm. get. And then the other monster, the one that the other student turns into, you see that in a couple of scenes too. But it's a very small slice of the game where you're actually dealing with love, vi- like Lovecraftian visual stuff. The rest mm-hmm. of it is 
a lot of like visuals that suggest that things are not real or visuals that are meant to scare you and put you off guard and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good point. Um, I definitely thought like, again, with that call of Cthulhu game, I thought they just relied too much on visual, like, isn't this monster scary? It can mm-hmm. phase in and out of the painting. That's creepy. Like, <laughs> as opposed to kind of the human effect. Yeah. Which is like the cooler part, I think. Like, artistic depictions of Cthulhu look cool, but sure. the effects that that has on the characters in those stories are way more interesting to me than giant squid monster. Yeah. I think that's the misunderstanding that a lot of adaptations get is like, the hook of a good Lovecraftian horror story is not the monster, which is kind of, I think kind of what, especially with the, you know, mythos being expanded by other unrelated authors and stuff. Like that's kind of what it's become about, but like that Mm -hmm. is not, it's so much less of a thing in his actual writing, you know? And the reason Bloodborne, I think, succeeds in that is the Lovecraftian monsters that you come across don't look like stuff you would be expecting. Right. Right? Yeah. They look super weird. They look like its own thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, this has been a really fun conversation, especially the spoiler section was something that like I kind of struggled with this game to put together and then deliver a coherent spoiler section. And I really appreciate (laughs) uh, what you brought to that. And then, you know, your perspective on uh, Lovecraftian media too. So I really appreciate you suggesting this game and then coming on and talking about it with me. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, You know, maybe next, next year we'll do not a scary game. I (laughs) don't want to typecast myself too much. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on the show sometimes. It's always a good time talking games with you. Thanks again, Jamie. Yeah, of course. And thanks everybody for listening. Tune in next week for the last game of Spooky Month, which is The Quarry. If you listen this far, but everyone knows if you've seen the schedule announcements, The Quarry's coming up next. And then I'll be out of horror games uh, for a couple weeks at least. So thank you so much again for listening. Tune in next week for the next game that comes out of the backlog. <laughs>